0: He is risen. I love that. I love that uh, really all around the world, people today, whether they are trusting in Christ or not, often will respond to he is risen. They will say he is risen indeed. I I remember in Russia, I've told you this before, but when I served in Russia, uh, that was, you know, here's a country that was like 70 years captured by communism. Atheism was the, was the official religion, and uh, and on on Easter Sunday though, we'd walk around, and I, I would I would just go everywhere on that Sunday morning because I wanted to say this to as many people as I could. I'd say "On Chris which means "He has risen," and they would they would respond uh, that He has risen indeed, and uh, you know it's true. And my hope today is that we go beyond just that thought, right? Just the just a, the rote memorization of a phrase and a response, but that we would take great joy in the reality of our risen Savior. He is risen. He is risen indeed. If you have your Bibles with you, why don't you turn to Hebrews chapter 13? And our text today is going to be verses 20 through 21. Hebrews chapter 13. One more time, join me in prayer as we ask for God's help as we look at his word. Father, we come before you today in one accord and ask that you would do your work among us. Pray that you would move here in our hearts. And I pray that joy would rise in our hearts like a spring sunrise. Joy. Joy that this world doesn't even understand. Like joy that flies in the face of all human wisdom. Joy in suffering. Joy in, in the hardest of times. Joy in Christ that transcends all that we face in this life and runs through. And not just, a, not just a, like a, a chipperness. I'm not praying for chipperness. I'm praying for deep, lasting, real joy in the person and the work of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's the work I'm asking you to do. That's the work I'm asking, we're asking together for you to do. Bring joy to our hearts through Christ. Ignite faith in the hearts of any unbelievers who've come here today. May, may, may blinders come off and the, the idols uh, be seen for what they are and, and Christ be seen for who he is. And that there would be a turning, Lord. I pray for a turning, even in this room of hearts to you by faith through the gospel and encourage Christians, downtrodden Christians, distracted Christians. Lord, would you do your work here through your word for your good, for our good rather, and for the glory of God. I pray for your help. You know my insufficiencies, my weaknesses. I don't stand in here in my own strength. I stand here with your word before your people. Lord, I pray that your word would be clear. In Jesus' name, amen. So to focus our hope today, I thought it would be good to consider the benediction of the book of Hebrews, the benediction. Benedictions are those final hope-giving words at the end of many of the epistles. It's it's, it's the final word. That's what we mean by benediction. It's mostly used in the Christian church, benediction, benediction. It's a final word in many churches on Sunday morning. A pastor might, in many traditions, a pastor at the very end of the service will like stand in front, usually raise his hand and he'll say something like, may the God of peace and comfort be with you. That's a benediction. We, we, we have a benedictory prayer at the end. That's how we close our services. Benedictions are good for us. The, this sermon and this and the service might be centered sometimes on difficult truths, Some Sundays we talk about warnings. Some Sundays we talk about biblical correction. Like we'll spend the whole morning on corrections. And benedictions are helpful because we we want to set all of those things in the context of hope. And so a benediction is the hope that we speak at the end. We set everything in hope of Christ, in the hope of Christ. The reason I've chosen this passage for this Sunday is because it's Easter. And Easter, or Resurrection Sunday, Is a benediction of sorts. The resurrection is the benediction of the gospel. The good news that Jesus has died on the cross and that he carried our sorrows and that he borne our griefs is not the whole gospel. It's a big part of the gospel, but it's not the full gospel. Good Friday for sure is good. It's good news. Last Friday night, we came together to share the Lord's Supper and to think together about the events of Good Friday, that Friday almost 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on the cross until dead. We offered five reasons why Jesus Christ died on the cross and all of those reasons are good for us, all of them. Today, we celebrate the benediction of the gospel. Our hope does not stop at the events of Good Friday. Our hope does not end with the crucifixion and the subsequent burial of Christ. Our hope is that our good shepherd who laid down his life for us is not dead. We have a living hope because Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. Our shepherd is alive today. And so we have great and living hope. The resurrection is a benediction of the gospel. And I think it plays out powerfully in this passage. And so I thought it'd be good to dwell here for a bit in the benediction of Hebrews for our good and for the glory of God. And you can actually see both of those elements here in this passage. So since we offered on Friday five reasons why Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross, today I'm going to offer you five, see from this text, five reasons why today ought to be a day of great rejoicing for Christians. My aim this morning, unabashedly without any like apology, is your joy. That's my aim. Your joy in Christ. And maybe as a side note or an aside or a secondary motive, your confidence as you live out this Christian life, your hope as you struggle with sin, your, 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 your like strength so that you can fight for holiness in your life. That's my aim this morning. So I have five reasons. Here we go. Reason for rejoicing, number one, is because God is a God of peace. He begins this benediction in verse 20 with God, the God of peace. God is the provider and he is the maintainer of peace. He's the one who establishes peace between two warring peoples. Two people at enmity, two two parties rather at enmity. When Jesus was born, the angels praised God by saying, this is from Luke 1:14. Do you remember this? They were saying, "Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased." And then in Ephesians 2:17, Paul tells us that Jesus came and preached what? Peace to you who are far off and to those of you who are near. The work of God in Christ was to make peace with God and his people. God is the God of peace and he sent his son to make peace on earth with his people. That means, of course, that we were lacking peace, right? I mean, there was a need for peace. That's why Christ came. There was a need for peace. We were enemies of God as we see both in Ephesians 2 and in Colossians 1.21. We were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Paul teaches us We were God's enemies, and our sin was our open hostility to God. Your sin, my sin, is rebellion against God. We were God's enemies, and his righteous judgment was why he would not be at peace with us. On the one hand, there is rebellion, and on the other hand, there is holiness, and the two could not have fellowship. There was enmity. His holiness and our sinful rebellion meant enmity, not peace. But God, God is the God of peace and he brokered an everlasting peace with us. He didn't do that in the way that China just brokered a peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia. You might've heard that this week. The Chinese president brought two historic enemies to a table and the result of that meeting was a peace treaty. Now there are two massive differences between the way that China made peace between these two nations and the way that God makes peace with man. First, the Chinese had no dog in the fight. China was not trying to prove what China was trying to do is prove itself on the world stage, having influence and so on. They had no stake in either side of the conflict, either the Saudi Arabia side or the Iran side. The dictator of China just called these two nations on the phone and said, hey guys, let's come together and talk this out. And he mediated a peace accord as a neutral party. That's one huge difference. God is no neutral party in this enmity. The conflict is between man and God and it has persisted since man rebelled against his creator and sinned. And God is not the neutral party. He is the offended party. That's a huge difference. The second way this is massively different from the peace brokers like China bringing peace, as it were, to Saudi Arabia and Iran is that when God brings peace, he brings an everlasting peace. Not some flimsy peace that looks good with speeches and might last a year. But an eternal peace accord with his people that will last Forever. God has assured peace. He sent his son to make peace with us by the work on the cross. The only way any sinner can be in friendship with God, the only way is through Jesus. The only way you will enjoy the smile of God and not be under his frown is Christ's. Oh friend, my prayer today, this morning, is that you are believing that truth. You are trusting in the finished work of Christ who made peace between a holy God and guilty sinners. Are you trusting in him today? You should rejoice this morning. God is a God of peace. He is the God of peace. The gospel is good because it is God making peace with us through Christ. And by the way, just as an aside, this is one massive reason why drama and hostility among the people of God is so unbecoming. We are the people of God. We are the people of the God of peace. Our God as a God is the God of peace and we are his people. And so peace and love is what is becoming of God's people, not hostility and enmity and strife and divisions and all of those things that often characterize the church. No, we are to be a people of peace. God has established peace and we're gonna see that as we go, how he's done that as we unpack this benediction. Reason number two for, for rejoicing this Resurrection Sunday is also in verse 20. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. That's a precious image, and it's used a few times in the New Testament. The great shepherd is Jesus. He says it real clearly there. The Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. The sheep are his people, the church, Christians. You you can't read this without calling to mind what Jesus said more extensively about this in John chapter 10. I almost, like I was studying this passage, and I went to John 10, I almost... Preached on John 10 instead, but instead I'll just quote it for you. John 10, 11 through 16. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. The writer of Hebrews seems to be very aware of this passage, right, when he uses this term. But he makes one subtle change, to that passage. Do you see the change that between what Hebrews 13:20 says and what John 10:11 said? Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. The writer of Hebrews calls him the great shepherd. He is the great shepherd who knows and gathers his flock. He owns the sheep. He does not run from the wolf because he's 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 the shepherd. He's not a hireling. He knows his own, his own know him, and that is because they are his sheep and he is the shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. God cares for us, guys. That's what that means. That's what the role of a shepherd. A shepherd cares for his sheep, nourishes his sheep, makes sure the sheep are safe. The reason you have today for great rejoicing in Christ is because Jesus is your great shepherd. The next reason for rejoicing this Easter is that God has brought again from the dead the great shepherd. What good would it do for a shepherd to only lay down his life for the sheep? Think of it for a moment. I don't want to press this imagery too hard, but just follow me. If a bear comes out, right, and attacks the sheep, and a shepherd stands in the way between that bear and the sheep and, and slays the bear, but then dies. What good is that alone for the sheep? Now I know immediately there's some good, right? The bear doesn't just go feasting on the sheep. He's dead. But the shepherd would be dead. So what good is it for the good great shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep if in the end we are left like a flock without a shepherd? Like, like sheep without somebody to nourish us and care for us. Thankfully, both John 10 and Hebrews 13 help us to know that our shepherd did not leave the sheep shepherdless when he died. He laid down his life and he took it up again. As our passage says, God brought from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Our shepherd is alive because of the resurrection of Christ. We do not say we once had a good shepherd. That's not how we talk. We don't say we once had a great leader who nourished us, cared for us, looked after us. We say we have a great shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd. We rejoice because our great shepherd is risen from the dead. What this passage is teaching us ultimately is that God is at work in us through Jesus' ongoing shepherding work in us. The great shepherd of the sheep is our eternal shepherd and he continues his work in us. That's great reason for rejoicing this morning. And note the last phrase of verse 21 or 20, 20. It's the fourth reason to have great joy this Easter Sunday. The great eternal shepherd whom God has led back, who has, whom God has brought back from the dead works in us by the blood of an eternal covenant. So I'm at this stage in life where I cannot just take the promises of one of my children at face value. Instead, I have to look for a confirmation. So in this particular, you know, like I could be in this really intense tickle fight with this child. You know what I mean? Like what dads do with their little girls. And she could say, truce. Right? I, I want a truce. I want to stop. I, I want to attack you. Now, At first, I would just be like, okay, great. But then she'd attack me. And I'd be like, that's not right. Well, she said, no, it was right because I had my fingers crossed. Or I had my leg... I have to actually look at her socks to see if there's a lump between the big toe and the little toe because she's crossing them. One time, I think she actually crossed her tongue, but I'm not sure because I didn't understand what she was saying with it. I asked her permission if I could share all this. If I really want to ensure that the truce is real, I got to offer my pinky. You know what I mean? Pinky promises, those are solid. Those hold. In grown-up land, we have pinky promise type things too, don't we? Promissory notes that you sign that you're going to pay back a loan. The collateral that you put up to buy a car or, or a house that they own, they have a lien on those things, that sort of thing. Now, obviously, God does not need anything more than his word to prove his promises. He does not need anything to substantiate his promise. If God says something, it is true by the nature of God saying it. He is truth. And what he says stands. Yet, when God designs to make an eternal covenant with his people, he doesn't just say it. This is so good for us. He doesn't just say it. He does say it, but he doesn't just say it. He he doesn't just swear it, even though Hebrews teaches us he does swear it by himself because there's no name higher. When God designs to covenant with his people, he signs the covenant with the blood of the Son. The Son shed his blood so that we can be in an eternal covenant with God. The covenant in his blood. Is forever the foundation of our justification and our, of God, before God, our forgiveness of our, our sins, our continued relationship with God. Christ shed his blood for us. Therefore, this is a promise that lasts forever. This is an eternal covenant. Let that sink in, an, an eternal covenant. Think of that, an eternal promise that God has made between, between himself and all those who trust in Christ. God will never go back on his promise to you. Never. He will never shrink back from you if you are in Christ by faith. His blood, as the hymnist says, has sealed our pardon. No genuine Christian who has been covenant to God by the blood of Christ will ever perish. Ever. Not one. One. That's cause for great joy this Easter morning. And all the craziness that we face, the uncertainty that we face, somebody share with me just this morning, the, the, the uncertainty that they face often, this is cause for great joy in the midst of that kind of uncertainty because this is certain. This is as certain as the air you breathe. Reason number five brings us to verse 21. Let me read it again. I'm gonna read verse 21. It says, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our fifth reason for rejoicing on this Resurrection Sunday is that God through Christ, through the great shepherd whom God has brought back from the dead, through the blood of the eternal covenant, God continues his work in us by equipping us and working in us to do what is pleasing in his sight and glorifying to God. Let's dwell here just for a moment. God through Christ equips us for everything good that we may do his will. Everything good. That must mean that everything we need so that we can accomplish what God demands and commands. All of God's blessings to us, all of the good that he shows us and gives to us, all of it together is equipping us to do God's will. That means that, if you flip this around, without God's continuing work through Christ in us, we are not equipped to do God's will. We are not, we, we, we are not able to do what is pleasing in God's sight. We cannot do anything without God's gracious, equipping work in us. Like Jesus said, without me, you can do Nothing. You cannot do anything without Jesus. All of the good work that is doing his will, all of it is owing to God's grace, equipping you to do his will. God gives us even the will to do his will. He gives us the ability to do his will. He gives us the power to do his will. He equips us with everything we need to obey him and please him and do his will. He has equipped us through Christ. And we could spend a lot of time here thinking about what that equipment looks like, but I'm afraid we'd just have to be brief. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he actually spent a lot of time with his disciples, telling them that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, would come. He would, he would help them. He was, he'd be their helper. Now we have the Holy Spirit and his power in us equips us to do what is pleasing to God. Uh, the church is part of that equipping work, isn't it? We encourage and edify and teach and hold one another accountable and and correct one another and point one another to Jesus. And all of that is equipping for the task that God has given us to do. This is part of God's equipping work. His word. His word is part of his equipping work in us. We have his word. We know what is pleasing to him. We don't have to guess. We don't have to try to figure it out. He has given us his word so that we might know how to please God. Many ordinary means of grace come together to comprise God's equipping work in you and in me through Christ. The point is that God in Christ, the risen shepherd through the blood of the eternal covenant has equipped us to do his will. And the second part of that is that God is actually working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. You see that? He's actually doing the work. God is working in us. He not only gives us what we need, he works in us so that we could do his will and do what is pleasing to God. Those two realities, his equipping ministry for us and his working out in us, this work is why we do anything good and pleasing to God. It is only through the work of God in Christ that we can do anything at all. Listen to how Paul put it in Philippians to the Philippian believers. Philippians, Philippians 2.12. I'll just read one verse and then I'll read the other in a second. Verse Verse 12, 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, there's a command for you to obey, right? Pretty big command, a pretty heavy command. As you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Like, let the salvation that is in you permeate everything about your life. Work it out. Let it shape your attitudes and loves. All by itself, that would be a daunting command. That would be an impossible command. I cannot do what is pleasing to God in myself. I cannot love others. I cannot die to self. I cannot... Be holy in all of my thoughts and my my words and my deeds. So I, for one, am super glad that he didn't end it there. Philippians 2.13, the very next verse says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So see the two sides of this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Please God, that's the command. And it is God who works in you to please God. That's the promise. So the most famous line from Augustine's Confessions says it really well. Augustine prays to God and he says this. He says, command what you will and grant what you command. Command me to love my wife. Command me to love my neighbor. Command me to love my enemy. Command me to love the Lord my God with all of my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. Command me not to love this world. Command me not to lust. Command me not to envy others. Command me not to put my interests first. Command me not to love idols. Command me to be holy. Command what you will and grant what you command. Friends, is that not cause for great rejoicing on this Easter morning? God commands, his commands are heavy, yet he grants what he commands through the risen Christ working in you, equipping you and giving you the power and the strength and the ability and the will to complete his commands. Doesn't that give you confidence in your fight against sin? Sin, I don't know, You have to feel this. Sin feels like sometimes impossible not to do it. But God does all of the work in us so that we might turn to Christ by faith and see the overcoming work of God in us, the equipping and the working out. So cause for great joy and great confidence in the Christian life and in sin fighting and pursuit of holiness and all of that. So this is the reality of God working in us through the risen Lord Jesus Christ, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equipping us and working in us to do what is pleasing in his sight, to do his pleasing will. But let's not miss the end of verse 21. What is the end of all of this working and equipping? What's the end of the blood of the eternal covenant? What is the final end of God's of the God of peace raising up the Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. Where is the great shepherd of the sheep leading his sheep? What's the end of all of this? What is this all about ultimately? The end of all of this is in the end of verse 21, which says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know what that means? I I talked about this a little bit on Friday night. Then I, I, I said I defined, I defined it like this. I said the glory of God is the display of God. It is the display of His worth and His qualities and His value and His praiseworthiness and His beauty. God is at work in you through the blood of the eternal covenant, shed by the great Shepherd whom the God of peace brought back from the dead. He's at work in you to display his grace and his goodness and his mercy and his kindness and his holiness and his love in you. This is the end. This is the great aim of the gospel. God works all of that so that we and others might see God in all of his splendor and majesty and loveliness. And that, friends, is our greatest good. And that is cause for great rejoicing on this Easter Sunday. God is at work in you. If you are in Christ, God is at work in you, glorifying himself forever. You have cause this Sunday to rejoice. God has been so gracious to us, has he not? He sent the Son to shed his blood for you. And then he raised up the great shepherd of the sheep from the dead. And through him, he equips you and works in you that which is pleasing in his sight so that we get to see the smile of God. What good news. And I'll just say two things by way of application. If you're not trusting in Christ today, why, what is holding you back? Why would you persist under the frown of God when God has done this work for you? Turn and trust in Christ today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will enjoy the smile of God, the working of God, the equipping of God, the eternal covenant of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Put aside all the things that you trust in, like your goodness and your merit like your own good things that you do, the religious ceremonies that you participate in once in a while. Put it all aside and look to the cross and trust in Jesus alone. And you will be saved. One point of application. The other is have great joy today, friends, fellow believers in Christ. Jesus is not dead. The tomb does not contain his body. He is alive. And in him we are made alive. For the glory of God. So I want to leave you with this Easter benediction as we close. I think it will sound a little familiar at least this morning. So I want you to do this. I want you to think of Good Friday. Jesus Christ going to the cross for you. Dying. Bleeding. Suffering. Being mocked giving up his spirit, saying it is finished, legs not being broken, side being pierced, taken off the cross, put in the tomb. Why do you think of that? Along with that, I want you to think of the commands and the warnings of scripture. The scriptures are full of commands. Think of God's demands on your life. Put that in your mind. Think of how difficult to live this Christian life is. Have all of that in mind on this lovely Sunday morning as you listen to this. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we come to you grateful for your amazing grace in our lives and in this world. We are grateful for the resurrection and the new life that we have in Christ. We are thankful that we stand under your smile Because of Jesus, you look at us not with scorn and enmity like you once did because of our sin, but you look at us with love and affection because of Christ and what he has done. And you continue the work in us through this eternal covenant signed in blood by Jesus Christ so that we might do what is acceptable in your sight. Lord, may we live this out and do so with great joy. Would you grant great joy among us today in our risen Lord Jesus Christ and great confidence in this Christian faith, in this Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen.